I'm Krista Tippett, and this is a special offering, an incredible celebratory listening party. Listening back and remembering forwards across 20 years of this show. What follows is the recording, and I think you'll enjoy being in the room retroactively. It was a Zoom room, though my brilliant colleagues made it wonderfully rich and unzoomy. So it was on video, and there are a lot of references to things we're seeing and witnessing, including a stunning opening poem by our dear friend Maria Popova, composed of On Being show titles. So if you want to watch the whole thing, find a link in the show notes. I'll be back next week with a poem and short farewell before we take what we're calling our Summer of the Pause. That comes with offerings to Beyond This Podcast, and you can be part of it by signing up at onbeing.org slash staywithus. So here we go. This is Speaking of Faith. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about about religion, meaning, ethics, and and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, in a spacious conversation with the 22nd U.S. Poet Laureate, the legendary primatologist is a next-generation marine biologist. The magnetic Haitian-American flutist, thinker, and leading figure in the abortion debate is one of our greatest living architects of social transformation. Project scientist for NASA's Kepler mission. the former chief rabbi of Great Britain. The celebrated Mexican-American writer. journalist, prophet of our congressman and civil rights legend. extraordinary healer in our world of I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Stay with us. Welcome. It is um, remarkable and thrilling and such an honor to be gathered with all of you from across planet Earth, as far as I can see. And I also, you know, we're, we are in our studio on Loring Park, and we haven't been here much together. So actually doing this event has brought many of us together in a way today for the first time in a while. Um, Chris and Matt are here in front of me, and many of our colleagues are downstairs. And I, you know, I think about, and you maybe heard me refer to the beautiful far-flung on-being universe, and what a thing it is to have you here to help us mark this crossing. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this phrase of our, of John O'Donohue, the late John O'Donohue. Um, That program, that on-being program has been so important to so many people, as I've heard across the years. And one of the things he talked about is how Life is full of thresholds, any life. There are small thresholds, there are large thresholds, and the important thing is that we notice them and that we do what we can to cross them worthily. And so as we've been planning this listening party, I think that is what I wish, that we cross this worthily and we couldn't do it without all of you. Um, I also could not be happier to welcome today my friend, um, the Reverend Jen Bailey, to keep me company, to help us curate and move this hour forward. Jen um, was an on-being fellow, um, 
I very vividly remember her taking a nap on that sofa over there because she was exhausted with the incredible work she does in the world. Um, she's also a teacher to me. She is a friend of a different generation, and this friendship is means so much to me. And she's been on the show a couple of times, as you may have heard. Um, Jen is one of the many people. She's someone who I look at. Um, she is an embodiment of what I find hope in, in this world, even with so much in front of us, so much work to do, so many huge callings. So I just want to bring Jen in. And, you know, Jen and I have actually been in a conversation for, for years and years, and that's also the spirit in which we're going to be together here, uh, just continuing this conversation as we, as we do some listening and some reflecting. And I don't know, I don't see Jen, is she? Yeah, okay. Oh, I'm here. Hi, Okay, Christa. okay, <laughs> there you are. <laughs> I don't trust technology. <laughs> oh, it is so wonderful to be with you. And I'm just honored to be here to help host the celebration, in part because On Being has played such a pivotal role in so many milestones in my own life, so many thresholds in my own life from taking care of me and letting me sleep on a couch when I was exhausted (laughs) (laughs) to um, mourning the death of loved ones to bringing my my beautiful baby Max into the world. I feel like this has been a community that has accompanied me and these beautiful life milestones. And so I'm just grateful that I get to be here to help you celebrate a milestone. Krista, 20 years, 20 yeah, years. <laughs> That's amazing. It's hard to believe. Yeah. Uh, so for the next hour or so, we're going to hear voices that you love, we'll remember, we'll ponder, we'll enjoy, we'll celebrate, and even get a tiny glimpse into what's ahead. And just a few uh, housekeeping notes before we begin for folks who are joining us. Closed captioning is available via the CC button at the bottom of your Zoom window. Please, if you haven't already, say hello in the chat. I am seeing people and places from all around the world are gathered here to celebrate. Um, If you're holding questions or need technical support, you can reach out to mail at onbeing.org. And over the course of this event, we'll ask you to share reflections and feedback in the chat. We'll be recording this event to share in our weekly newsletter, The Pause, in our podcast feed and on our YouTube channel. So comments from the chat may be referenced anonymously or by first name in future On Being offerings. And now let me just name some of the folks I see. I see folks calling in from, it's going so fast, from my hometown of Nashville, Tennessee, from Raleigh, North Carolina, from Myrtle Beach, from Berlin. My goodness, Krista, the on being <laughs> community is vast. And as we just take a moment to, to breathe in this moment, I'm gonna ask you, how are you feeling? And what does it mean <laughs> right, to, to cross a threshold worthily in this moment? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's been an important image for me. Um, sorry, I, I'm going to take this in and out, even though I was told to do it discreetly. <laughs> um, I, first of all, I've learned the value through this life of conversation of marking, right? Marking transitions of ritual. So first of all, doing this. Um, 
and then and gathering gathering our people um which has always felt like a a world of community as well as a world of listeners um you know we've we've often said that that what we do how we proceed editorially and really how we've evolved has been about the fact that we've always been listening to our guests, but also listening to the world and listening to our listeners. And we're going to do that a little bit today as well. Um, and, you know, the, the final thing I want to say is there's a phrase that, that uh, was really meaningful for me um, earlier in my life. It's actually from Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. The White Queen says, it's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards. And... I, you know, sometimes, and I have learned that civil rights leaders sometimes put a hyphen in that word remembering, remembering. So even as we listen backwards and take in experiences of these 20 years that are ending, um, we are remembering what is ahead of us. And I, I hope that this can become, this. It's certainly, it's certainly an experience of that for me, but I hope perhaps it can be for everyone because we're also going to be pretty contemplative um, in this particular Zoom space. Wow. Wow. You know, one of the many ways that you invite us in to accompany you on the show is with this question, this question <laughs> that has grounded so many of your conversations over the years, which is simple. And it is, what was the spiritual or religious background of your childhood? We're going to actually ponder that question collectively together in a moment. But first, I just want to offer a few moments of inspiration for everyone. Let's watch. I start most of my interviews with a question just wondering about the religious or spiritual background of someone's childhood. I find that is a very fertile place in everybody's imagination, whatever their story is. It's full of questions and searching and softness. I, I don't know where to start, actually. Uh, I grew up pretty confused. Well, I would say that even before I was born, I was a pagan dancer. The first thing I think about is an, an absence of it. And it was so absent in my house. Well, I know I didn't feel like I, I had any kind of religious or spiritual thing going on uh, as I grew up. And um, I think I was looking for something when the banjo turned up. What really drew me to, to Judaism was that, like many trans kids, I had an intense sense of God as a real, living, constant presence. I guess if I were to follow the first route back, it would it would take me into the mountains of the Cairngorms in the northeast of Scotland, where my uh, my grandparents lived for many decades. I don't know why, but I've always been God crazy. You know, I have been drawn toward whatever the cosmic mysteries are from boyhood on. All that to say, that's how I sort of lived my life. I lived my life as a sort of dreamer always thinking about how I would and could pull from whatever sort of resources or love that I had to make something of a life.
Krista, can I ask you why this question of all the questions in the world? And I know you to be a deep question asker. <laughs> why this question as your starting point? Um, well, I, I want to say, um, first of all, I saw somebody asking if um, they said they wanted to know who those voices were. And we'll let you know. And I also saw someone ask a while ago about the beautiful quotations from our from my colleagues at the beginning. And I'm sure we can find a way to share those as well. You know, as you just heard um, in that collage that my colleagues pulled together in such a beautiful way, um, that question often elicits um, a wonderful, rich, surprising answer, surprising even to the person who is being asked. And um, one thing interesting that I learned early on is that whereas if, if, if I asked you or if anyone asked me, in the present tense, tell me about your spiritual life. Are you a spiritual or religious person? That is a, um, that's a, that's a, we would all fumble. That's a, that's a very, it's an incredibly intimate question. It's hard to put words around. And, um, and I think it could put many people on the defensive. Um, it's, it could be uncomfortable, but the fascinating thing is that asking the question about someone's religious or spiritual background, the background of their childhood, even if they are an atheist physicist, somehow that opens a space that is a space not just in thought, but in memory, right? I think, it, it, and it opens a space that is very soft and searching and full of questions, which also fascinated me from the beginning, because in this culture, we've so associated religion with answers. Um, and I've also found, and so, so what I want to say is one reason I always ask that question at the beginning is because of, of where it plants a person in themselves, which is, again, you know, when we go into memory, we go into our bodies. And we're so used in this world to showing up in a presentational place, to talking about what we do and what we know. And this gets everybody grounded in the fullness of themselves, which is also who they are and the questions they've been carrying. And it's been fascinating to see how often in such different interviews, we will often circle back by the end of the interview to something that was named in that first question that is absolutely present in the life someone has led, you know, at a much later age. Wow. I love that that memory is embodied and it takes mm -hmm. us out of that space of desiring to have all the answers and gets yeah. us back into that sense of sense and just bodily knowing and being. I love that. Well, after um, we're, just a moment, we're actually going to prompt you all, those of you who have joined us to answer that question for yourself. Yeah. So you'll see that question <laughs> come up on the screen. Yeah, let me just say, we, it, it felt like um, I've had the experience across the years and even recently that when I meet people, they, they want me to ask them that question. <laughs> and it felt to us like just as it grounds every on being conversation, um, let's ground this gathering um, with that question as well. And we obviously just have a few minutes. Um, I, if you have pen and paper to hand, if you just want to walk around the room, um, this, the question will be up on the 
on the, you'll see it visually. Um, I don't think anybody will be able to complete an answer in five minutes. That's not the point of the exercise, but see where it takes you in memory. See what surfaces, and also, um, and we're going to put this on the visual as well, see if something surfaces a question, an enduring question, a longing, a passion um, that, you, that you see as planted there that is with you still. And as you're sitting with that question or longing or passion, we'll invite you after those five minutes to just share that in the chat. And so we'll, we'll give you a moment now to sit with that question. Welcome back, everybody. Oh, as I was just observing in the chat, so many beautiful witnessings to what this question stirred up. I saw a lot of references to family and grandmothers mm -hmm. and grandfathers in particular. Yeah, I saw, which, somebody said met bodies with grandmother. Exactly. <laughs> which reminds I, me of your story. Exactly. I was like, yep, that's yep. me. <laughs> um, community accountability are words that I've seen. Um, the reflection about the reflection of the divine within oneself mm -hmm. uh, as a longing and wondering. I wonder what else you you were noticing um, um, in the chat. Well, you know, I, I would have said this before. It's these aren't all good stories, right? And exactly. I, you know, so much these this question often elicits a a story of absence. Um, and so there's there's some of that, and yet even in that absence. Um, there's there's something mobilizing, right? There's something animating because it it is a it it still becomes this place. It's a place in us, right? Spiritual life. Um, it's also why I say religious or spiritual, because mm. for many the two go together, but not for all of us. And I think whoever we are, even if we should be planted in the same tradition our whole lives long that we were born in, the meaning of those words, religious and spiritual, evolve across a lifetime. So I'm seeing a lot of that. I'm seeing a lot of, of evolution mm, within traditions um, and also you know, find, finding things later, I think, being, being propelled by what was missing in one's early life. So thank you everybody for uh, for for doing that with us. Um, I hope that was enjoyable. I also somebody brought forth that Rilke poem. God speaks to each of us as He makes us, which is so important to me. Mm. It ends um, nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Take my hand. I think one of the things we've done um, in the last few weeks as we move towards this is also invite listeners to send, for you, you listeners, for humans out there in the On Being universe to send in um, some of your memories. And, you know, I, I want to say 
this was a hard sell in the beginning, creating this show. And what always kept us going, kept me going, and also convinced people who didn't believe in this to keep it on the air, was um, the extraordinary way that people told us that they take on being into their life, that it lands in communities, that it sometimes transforms conversations and possibilities and life choices, so that we can be there for people um, through life thresholds, uh, beautiful and sorrowful. And um, so we, Chris, if you are a listener to the um, unedited, which many people are, <laughs> He, Chris is Chris is beloved and famous, and he's right here in front of me. I can see him. Um, and he has pulled together a kind of a, 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 an audio collage of um, some of the things that people said to us, some of some of what has come from this community that's gathered here um, about what it means to be a listener. And I I just can't express. Um, not just not just how much it means, but how absolutely important and sustaining um, it has been. And you know, we are going to listen in a in a little while to voices from the show, but we're going to start um, with a few minutes from you. Good morning, Krista. Hi, my name is Elena. I'm calling in from New York City. Hi, I'm Julie. This is Harwood from Texas. Clara in Massachusetts. I almost didn't do this. My name is Lindsay. This is Carl from Montana. I am a mechanical engineer living in Gdańsk, Poland. My name is Meg. Hi, my name is Mariev. My name is Rob. Hello, my name is Sara. I'm a listener from Italy. Hi, I'm Gina from Shanghai, China. I remember at the outbreak of COVID-19 in 2020, I stayed at home and I was feeling lonely, anxious, and confused about where I was heading in life. Um, so many, so many reflections. My name is Jill. I'm from England. My name is Donna, and I've been listening to your program for about two years. I'm 91 and a half years old. Sorry I found you so late. It seemed an overwhelming task to pull out only a few as there have been so it's many. It's tough to decide what one moment. I have so many on repeat. How can I pick a favorite episode? I'm thinking about when Naomi Shihab Nye talked about her first reading books. The episode with Carrie Newcomer. And I loved what Marie Howe said. With Dario Robleto. B.J. Miller's incredible story and his overcoming adversity in his life. Joan Halifax, which changed my life. Ajen Poo and Tarana Burke. All made statements that stopped me mid-stride or compelled me to hit the 15 seconds back icon a few times so I could hear it again. Krista's episode where she interviewed Joanna Macy about um, letters to a uh, young poet. Terry Tempest Williams and Robin Wall Kimmerer and all the mystics. Your conversation with Sharon Salzberg and Robert Thurman. I also reflect on Jericho Brown. And with Desmond Tutu. But it also the soul in depression. That series has saved me so many times. Music happens between the notes with the cellist Yoyoma. I was a lavender farmer in Nebraska, and I remember being on my tractor or out of my field and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to miss an episode. Dr. Wangari Matai has been profoundly influential for me. I listened to it when I was in labor with my second child. Between contractions, my midwife asked what would help me in the moment. 
My first thought was on being. I listened to the show for 15 years. It was most important to me during the pandemic when I experienced despair. The shows were like a good friend to me in that time. Driving this windy road on Vancouver Island, I was able to um, really find the strength and encouragement to do the inner work and to know that I have the chance to make a change. My precious son was incarcerated for a crime that hurt nobody but those he loves. When I went to visit him, I would listen to On Being to get myself ready. One of my favorites. It has to be the poets. I enjoyed all of the episodes with the poets. So many of the poets have enriched my life. Oh, Marilyn Nelson, Jerry Brown. Of course, John O'Donohue. And Marie Hale. John O'Donohue. Naomi Shihab Nye. I tuned in during the show, and the first thing I heard was John quoting Meister Eckhart. I heard David White on your podcast reading out his Sweet Darkness poem on his episode. It has to be Mary Oliver. I think about returning to Mary Oliver. Mary Oliver, of course. Your interview with Mary Oliver had a real impact on me. To me, the episode that has impacted my life the most was Mary Oliver's story about her childhood. And it just felt as though I was in the woods with her. I experienced nature and all of its creatures very differently after having listened, and I thank you. Is when... Mary Oliver was about to start talking about her painful childhood and some of the abuse that she endured. And before she answered Krista's question, well, you could hear her taking a cigarette out of her pack and pausing to light it and taking the first inhale. And that moment said more about what she had endured than any words ever could and I appreciated that that moment was caught. I realized how valuable those days in the woods were for her and how healing it was to have that inside her when she returned to a turbulent home. Thanks on being. <laughs> it's just a flavor of who we are, who this, this on being world is and um, I, it was, I, I'm watching the, Jen, are you watching the chat? And I am. <laughs> so this gives you also a flavor of how it was impossible to say, there's, there's no, you know, there's so much resonance of so many, so many beautiful and wise human beings in the archive, and they mean so much to different people. You did hear Mary Oliver rise to the top, though. Um, and I think also just uh, poetry. You know, when I began this in the early 2000s, I never would have imagined that the voices of poets and um, poetry would become such a central aspect of the show. And it's about, it's about our profound need for language that circumvents um, how problematic words and relationship have come between us or, you know, when public life fails, human societies, poetry rises up and poetry is in all of the spiritual traditions. There's poetry throughout the Bible that I grew up reading, even though I didn't recognize it as poetry. So anyway, I want to, we want, I want, I thought I might play and on the heels of that, my, um, a favorite 
portion of the conversation I had with Mary Oliver. Um, it was a very rare thing to be able to be allowed to sit with her, and I was with her in person in where she, in Florida, where she had recently moved. And yeah, we're just gonna we're gonna listen to that together. So wild geese is in dream work. Um, and I've heard people talk about that, Wild Geese, as a poem that has saved lives. And I wonder if when you write something like that, I mean, when you wrote that poem, or when you published this book, would you have known that that was the, the poem that would speak so deeply to people? Um, this is the magic of it. That poem was written as an exercise in end-stopped lines. As an exercise in what? End-stopped lines, period, at the end of the line. <laughs> I was working with a, 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 a poet. I had her in a class. So it was an exercise in technique. Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, it's, not every line is that way. I was trying to show the variation. But my mind was completely on that. At the same time, I will say that, that I, uh, uh, I heard the wild geese. I mean, I just started out to do this for this friend and show her the, the, the effect of the, the, the line end is you've said something definite. It's very different from enjambment. And I love all that difference. And that's what I was doing. To your point that the mysteries and that combination of the yeah, discipline it, it, and, the, mm -hmm. and the convivial listening. Yeah, I was trying to do a certain kind of construction Nevertheless, once I started uh, writing the poem, it was the poem, and I, I knew the, the construction well enough that I didn't have to think about, do I have a, need an end sound line here, or is this where I should be? It just worked itself out the way I wanted for the exercise. Would, would but, you read that one? Sure. <laughs> That's a, kind of a secret, but... <laughs> but it's the truth. Wild geese... I actually thought it was, oh no, there it is, 14, you're right. Wild geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. The world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Announcing your place in the family of things. <laughs> so what do you think it was about that particular interview 
And that poem in particular that continues to transform and touch lives in such a deep, almost like unutterable place, right? Like you can't quite put words to why, but I'm just curious, I'm curious what you think it was about that moment. You know, Mary Oliver writes beautiful, beautiful words out of which she has rested out of a life that began with incredible pain and hardship and a lack of safety in her home. And she went outside to get safe. And she said somewhere in the interview, I I was saved by the beauty of the world. I think we made that the title last time we put it on the air. Somebody in the listener collage mentioned her smoking. Okay, that's the one and only time that I have done an interview and my producer texted on the way and said, she wants to smoke. Are you okay with that? Yeah, he said, of course I'm okay with that because it's Mary Oliver. Um, and somehow, again, because of the transcendent beauty of the poetry she writes, um, but she is so grounded in the fullness of life and its, its difficulty, right? the pain that is there alongside the beauty that is given us. I think, I think that's what it is. And, but you know what I want, there was, it, also though, there's something about this passage about her talking about wild geese, that it was an exercise in a form, right? <laughs> and then this incredible, this, this, this just gem of, of wisdom, um, Emerged And Jen, don't you think, you know, in the worlds we live in, in the world you live in, people doing hard work, um, there's, that, there's that, that synergy between the discipline and then, you know, she used the word, and then sometimes there's the magic. Yeah. And the two go hand in hand. Um, I love that moment where, you know, where she's starting to say this was an exercise, because I'm thinking if she's going to tell me about this incredible poem that's changed lives, and she says it's an exercise in end stuff life, and I hear myself <laughs> say, in what? <laughs> and then the other thing I love about this section is that she tells us right before she reads it, by the way, that's a secret. <laughs> and as she's has, as she has now said it to the millions of people, people who would eventually listen. Um, one thing I love about radio, and by the way, podcasting to me is just, you know, the, an evolution of radio, um, is there's a kind of time travel mystery that happens, right? So I was sitting with her in her living room, and she was speaking so intimately to me, and she even surprised herself, and she told a secret without even meaning to. And yet, um, whenever anyone else joined the conversation as a listener, because it was on the radio, or they listened to the podcast, or somebody sent it to them, they then are in that room with us, right? You listen yeah. to that, and you are there too when it happens. And that, I think that's a magic to me. It is magic. It, trans, it transports us across space and time in this mm. very, you know, in the language of my tradition, holy and sacred way. It's like time collapses yeah. for a moment and you are just invited to be. Yeah. And be with the conversation, be with the questions, be with the secrets that then get told yeah. to millions of people. Yeah. <laughs> There's an intimacy um, that is present that 
I think people are yearning for in mm-hmm. this moment in which public life is so public and even our private lives can yeah. feel so public and curated and for consumption to be in an intimate space of being with mm-hmm. and accompanying just feels like the work of, of what it means to be in a sacred place in this moment. And what's so beautiful to me is that there are so many of those moments in the life of the show, Krista. There's so <laughs> many moments where we are transported into living rooms or into the studio with you or into mm-hmm. these special places. And I know that one of the things that we wanted to do today was really invite people into listening together to some of those moments. And yeah. You got to whittle it down. I mean, 20 years, how'd you do it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're going to do some deep listening here. We're going to do something countercultural. We're going to listen to two batches of um, portions of voices, shows that I I selected and that we worked on as a team. Uh, I think it's 10 voices altogether. So I had to just very quickly discard the idea that what I was looking for were favorite moments because I can't, I can't do that. At, I can't do that at any time. <clears throat> I always say my favorite interview is the last one I did. Um, and I mean it. Um, so, so this first, but this first group um, is, there are a couple of voices in this one from the very early years of the show that people may not have heard, or if they hear, they will feel like, they will feel like very, very old friends. Um, and I feel like the way this came together was these, this is just a, a quick representation or kind of um, just a taste of, you know, when I set out to create a show that was originally called Speaking of Faith, or to, you know, to think about this aspect of life that, uh, which is what we call spiritual, religious, this part of the human enterprise where also a lot of moral imagination resides. Um, I think these voices reflect how my imagination and what we've learned together um, has so expanded as I have come to understand how 21st century people, both the breadth of the background the 21st century people bring, and also of entry points. Let's listen to some of those entry points. There's no question about the reality of evil, of injustice, of suffering. But, you know, at the center of this existence is a heart beating with love. How do you think working, you know, intimately knowing elephants and their social lives and whales and the songs of whales, this work you do, this passion you have, how how does that make you think differently about what it means to be human? Well, the ocean is really huge. When you get out on a little boat, you know it. You're clinging to a cork. <laughs> uh, it's huge, and it's capable of immense hugeness. <laughs> and out there, you know, rolling around and swimming through and perfectly at home in the waves 
are these enormous animals. And by golly, they're singing of all things. <laughs> they're doing something that we recognize as singing. Mm-hmm. And so what that has done for me is to make me feel that what lies ahead to be discovered is absolutely limitless. We are not at the pinnacle of human knowledge. We are just beginning. I was once working with a group of uh, Jewish junior high school kids. This must have been 25, 30 years ago. And I asked them if they believed in God. And I was hoping, as a good teacher, that some would say yes and some would say no, and it would be a neat discussion. But no one said he or she did. And I was I was devastated. I mean, did, they didn't even say... Yeah, they, mm-hmm. I, no, I don't believe in God. Like, like, no, it's not raining out. I was, I remember being devastated. I, I remember thinking, so it's come to this: uh, three thousand years of piety and struggle and agony for a bunch of obnoxious little suburban kids who don't believe in God. And I, I, uh, I wanted to, you know, sort of wring their necks. <laughs> and I, I don't remember what I did. I probably did the equivalent of falling back a few yards to punt. And then later on in the discussion, I don't know where it came from. I said, by the way, how many of you kids have been close to God? And so help me, every kid raised his hand. And that was a very eye-opening experience for me. And I, I, I realized that Jews will say, uh, I've been close to God, but I'm not sure I believe in God. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I was close last Shabbos when mother lit the candles or, you know, when somebody I love died, I was aware that the, the texture of religious time was different and that I was more intimate with the source of holiness Uh, in the universe. You wrote, one reason we find talking about God so difficult is we're part of what we're trying to understand. (laughs) What makes that harder to talk about? It pushes the edge of language. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the reasons that speaking of faith is such a slippery and a moving target is because we're trying to talk about the stuff of which we are. We're trying to take consciousness and turn it back on itself. So I went on my first demonstration, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but we were surrounded by horses and state troopers who wouldn't let us go to the bathroom. And I kept looking up at the sky waiting for the Exodus story to happen immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't happen. Well, so, so, I expected yeah. God to appear, some chariot to open up in the sky, because I couldn't imagine that we were so right and God would be so wrong. I lost religion that day, and I slowly became a Marxist. I became a materialist. If it wasn't economics, If it wasn't race, then it didn't exist. I had no space in my life for it. And I thought black folks were religious fanatics, you know? Well, so so tell us, how did you eventually circle back to the place or circle to the place, maybe it's not back, where you went to divinity school, where you started to be a public theologian, and what did that mean? How did well, that? I think the paradox is that even when we think we left home, we never really go anywhere. So I carried with me the songs, 
I carried with me the testimonies. I carried with me the, the whole notion of right relations. That, that was a cornerstone mm-hmm. of how I imagined justice. Mm-hmm. Even when you didn't feel religious. Right. Yeah. I, I really never left. But a defining moment for me happened when I was getting my locks washed and my locker's daughter came in one morning and she had been hustling all night and she had sores on her body and she was just in a state, drugs. So something said to me, ask her, where does it hurt? And I said, Shelly, where does it hurt? And just that simple question unleashed territory in her that she had never shared with her mother. And I realized in that moment, listening to her and talking with her, that I needed a larger way to do this work rather than a Marxist materialist analysis of the human condition. feels to me like this space you inhabit, what you're saying is that these are, this is a rigor of how we use our words and how we understand the power we have to move through time and through ordinary experiences of our day, that, that we all have it in ourselves to claim right now. Right. But you have ways of making that more possible in yourself. I mean, I've, I read, is it true? Do you still, do you live across from a cemetery? Is yes, right? I do. And I that, do. You, that you perform this Zen Buddhist death meditation. Yeah, yeah. I go out and I walk along the cemetery, and even without it, I sit down and I do a death meditation. And it's, it sounds very morbid, but the practice is actually supposed to bring yourself into the inevitable the conditions of our lives will be vanquished through death. And then, the, and then all the pettiness, you know, the, the little angers, you know, um, that you have with those you love or those you don't love, and your neighbor, the little things, you know, falls away. It's so small when the ultimate lasting reality is, is death. And I think it goes back to Noah's Ark, too. Okay. <laughs> Noah was also doing death meditation. Mm-hmm. You know? He was a Zen Buddhist without yeah, knowing it. I think so. He didn't know he was Jewish. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think so. <laughs> but, but I think this, all religions have this, you know, outside of all of the, the orthodoxy um, or the, and the rigor of ceremonies, at the center of it is trying to remind us that we will die. And how do we live a life worthwhile of our breath? You're always asked to sort of stretch a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but actually, uh, we're made for that. Uh, there's a song that wants to sing itself through us. And we just got to be available Maybe the song that is to be sung through us is the most beautiful requiem for an irreplaceable planet 
Or maybe it's a song of joyous rebirth as we create a new culture that doesn't destroy its world. But in any case, there's absolutely no excuse for our uh, making our passionate love for our world dependent on what we think of its degree of health, Mm. whether we think it's going to go on forever. Those are just thoughts anyway. But this moment, you're alive. So you can just dial up the magic of that at any time. The last voice we heard was Joanna Macy. We also heard Desmond Tutu, Katie Payne, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, Ruby Sales, and Ocean Vong. Mm-hmm. Krista, your conversation with Ruby Sales changed my life. Yeah, which means that um, question: Where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? And um, working in communities of color, working in Black communities, as I do. The invitation to ask that question to folks whose pain is so often diminished or ignored, um, it opened a whole new world for me and my community. So thank you. Um, I'm just so, I'm, I'm curious what that particular group of voices means to you as you think about this moment. Yeah, I, I think I think again that was um you know Rabbi Kushner early early giving me that definition that why it's so hard to talk about this is cuz we're it's at, it is at the it's, it is at the limits of words mm-hmm. and um and that is such an incredible challenge and it's a challenge we can't turn from I think St Augustine said we speak in order not to remain altogether silent um but all of the all of the particularity, um, the vocabulary, the practices, you know, the, and the difference between those with, yeah, I agree with you, like, if, if we knew how to ask that question, where does it hurt, it would change everything in our culture. We knew how to ask it in public and factor it in as important. Um, you know, Joanna, we're going to listen to one more, um, we're going to do one more listening session from the show from the 20 years. And this one is different. Um, Again, I was totally going with my gut because it was impossible to choose in any kind of rational way. And what I was trying to think of this time is what I'm needing to hear right now, kind of where we are right now in need of replenishment and sustenance and courage, and just to get grounded. And, uh, you know, Joanna, who we heard last, says, spokes about, speaks about, who's lived a long life, you know, speaks about how we are at a juncture as a species where we have the possibility of a great unraveling or a great turning. And I think that these voices we're going to hear next um, help us think about what it would mean to be present to, that, to this as a turning and starts with a couple of big, big subjects that are so so importantly framing for me and also things you and I have spoken about and, you know, time, how do we think about time and how we live with time and also the notion of beauty, um, the notion of joy as a calling 
I, I wanted to say, I'll say now, you know, when I'm doing my interviews in the studio and I'm not in the room with who, the person I'm interviewing, which is most of the time not true, um, I have my eyes closed. So you're seeing the faces of the people speaking, but I want to encourage you to close your eyes and listen deeply to this last piece uh, before we kind of start to close out this time. Spending six, seven years thinking about the underworld has really <laughs> messed up my sense of time. Um, it's, it's deepened it, it's tangled it. But the other thing is that the underworld tells the future, and this, I was not expecting that at all. I should have known because Greek myth tells us the Sibyl at Cumae, the Oracle at Delphi, they foretell the future, but they do so by peering into the underworld. Right. And now we're doing it scientifically. We're ice coring down to possibly up to a million years ago now in terms of data on, in Antarctica. And we're using that in part to foretell our own climate futures. Right, right. You know, in, in a very different context um, these days, um, more the context of how people in this country and your in your country as well are very mm. kind of socially and politically unsettled. Mm. Um, I find it useful and in its way calming to invoke, you know, what Martin Luther King Jr. called the long arc of the moral universe. Wow, what a phrase. And, the, and then what you bring forward, which which feels to me, you know, again, it's a, it's a different context, but it's a corollary to this is this notion of of deep time which also just sets our unrest. Not necessarily in a soothing context, but but in fact in a more reality-based frame of mind, right? And the way, yeah. the way time works. Well, I'm glad that's how it feels to you because that's how it feels to me too. Mm -hmm. And and for me, and it sounds like for you, uh, and put in context partly by that wonderful Martin Luther King Jr. quotation, deep time is a sharpening context for me. It says... Mm -hmm. Look at the gift of being now. Look at the astonishing responsibility of legacy leaving. And look at what right. you've inherited in the, the wonder of this world. And what, what will our time leave? That, that for me is the big Anthropocene question. And it's, it's posed beautifully by Jonas Salk, the immunologist who, who invented more or less single-handedly the polio vaccine and has helped eradicate that that disease, are we being good ancestors? Yes, are we being good ancestors? What a question to be asking. It's asking you to attend to the value of what you do and plant now yep. um, precisely for a world you'll never mm. see. Yes. I'm collecting, um, you know, definitions of beauty. I feel like beauty is... Uh, well, you know, so, so I'll give you some that I love. You know, in Islam, beauty is a core moral value. Um, you know, scientists and mathematicians, and you've named a few, you know, talk about, you know, if an equation is not elegant and beautiful, it's probably not true. There's this equation of beauty with truth. The, uh, the philosopher and poet John O'Donohue said, beauty is that in the presence of which we feel more alive. I wonder, I mean, beauty is a word you've used in this conversation. You use it a lot. Obviously, it's just there in what you do, whether you're talking about it or not. I wonder if you'd talk to me about the meaning of beauty for you or the power of beauty in the world. Wow. Uh, 
what a simple question. I know. <laughs> um, I think I can't say the word beauty without also equating it with the word transcendence. Mm. Because it seems like there's so many different things that are beautiful to so many different people. But I think beauty is often an encapsulization of a lot of different things in a certain moment, a frame. Let's say it could be yeah. you know, music, it could be uh, a poem, it could be an event, it could be in nature, and often, possibly most often in nature. But when that encapsulated form is received, there's a moment of reception and cognition of the thing that is some ways startling yeah. in the Sistine Chapel when you know uh, when you see the the finger you know Adam yeah, right. just about to touch there's that moment where something is being transferred there's a transfer of life mm. sometimes in people you can turn fear into joy mm. when you receive something that's living that goes inside you because it becomes your own There's a section where you were teaching Shelter for the Heart and Mind, which I, I wrote down, and it, it looked, it came out looking like a poem. <laughs> a, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, like it's an 11-line poem. I'm going to read it to you, and it's simple, and yet it's, yeah, I think it's in this category of what is really true. Um, I do the best I can. I try to learn from my mistakes, and the world is the world of constant change and pleasure and pain, and being thanked and not being thanked, all of those things. And so that's where equanimity comes in, as a kind of comprehension of this is the way things are. Wow, that's great. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> it's you. No, but it's you. <laughs> no, it is like literally your words. Wow, but that's when, amazing. But when I wrote them out, I realize that it's it's like this complete meditation. Um, you want to say any any more about that? That feels like in some ways it sums up so much of what we've been talking about. I'll send you this so you can see it as a poem. That's so beautiful. I'm so glad that I said that. I mean, it, it comes down so much of the time to equanimity, which is really peace. Mm -hmm. And certainly if I heard the word equanimity long ago, I would have thought that's really bizarre. What does that mean? And uh, so many times we think it means indifference, but it really doesn't. It's such a a huge capacity of our hearts to see what we're going through, to see what others are going through, and to just have this kind of perspective of there is change in life, and uh, there is light in the darkness, and darkness in the light, and we're not avoiding pain because some things just hurt. That's like fundamental. Yeah. But we're holding it in a way that it's almost like when I said earlier, the awareness is stronger than the visitor. Yeah. Um, it's like the love is stronger than the pain even, you know, and, and the, the room we create, the environment we create where all of this can come and go. Um, it is. It's built of awareness. It's built of love. And it's built of 
this sense of community that we're not so alone. And, and then we can really be with things in a very, very different way. Have you done kettlebells today? <laughs> I was hoping you were going to ask. I didn't know what I was like. We realize it's something yeah. we have in common. Yeah, yeah. We can't talk about it. We don't have time, but <laughs> that would be a delight. <laughs> yeah, totally. I did not do kettlebells Swinging. today, but I will. Yeah, I will probably tomorrow. Okay, yeah. so good. Um, would you read uh, just from here uh, on page 49 and yeah. just to the end of that? This mm. is from the Book of Delights. Yeah. Among the most beautiful things I've ever heard anyone say came from my student, Bethany, talking about her pedagogical aspirations or ethos, how she wanted to be as a teacher and what she wanted her classrooms to be. She said, what if we joined our wildernesses together? Sit with that for a minute. That the body, the life, might carry a wilderness, an unexplored territory, and that yours and mine might somewhere, somehow meet, might even join. And what if the wilderness, perhaps the densest wild in there, thickets, bogs, swamps, uncrossable ravines and rivers, have I made the metaphor clear, is our sorrow? Or, to use Smith's term, the intolerable. It astonishes me sometimes, no, often, how every person I get to know, everyone, regardless of everything, by which I mean everything, lives with some profound personal sorrow. Brother addicted, mother murdered, dad died in surgery, rejected by their family, cancer came back, evicted, fetus not okay. Everyone, regardless, always of everything. Not to mention the existential sorrow we all might be afflicted with, which is that we and what we love will soon be annihilated which sounds more dramatic than it might, let me just say dead. Is this sorrow of which our impending being no more might be the foundation, the great wilderness? Is sorrow the true wild? And if it is, and if we join them, your wild to mine, what's that? For joining, too, is a kind of annihilation. What if we joined our sorrows, I'm saying, I'm saying, what if that is joy? Ross, thank you. Thank you. What if we joined our sorrows, and what if that is joy? We just basked in the wisdom of Robert McFarlane, Yo-Yo Ma, Sharon Salzberg, and Ross Gay. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So it's also been amazing for me to be watching in the chat. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to thank everybody. And I'm going to, and I, I will read these all slowly later. Um, I, I want to say one thing, um, just one thing, because we, we do need to draw to a close, but that matter of finding joy and not treating joy as optional. But understanding that joy is life-giving, it is resilience-making, it is our human birthright, and it must accompany um, if we are to really walk into this world ahead of us and the, the vast challenges and, and the 
magnificent callings, um, we have to claim joy. We have to, we have to be whole and we have to stay whole. I, that is coming through in every person I've interviewed in these last months. I'm going to hold that as a blessing and mm. as a call to action yes. <laughs> and as, as, as the beginning of a benediction. Krista, one of the things that I saw in the chat from Kelly was that on being has been a portal into the future we need to live into now, mm. which naturally raises the question about what is the future, what is Krista? The future? What's ahead? Yeah, no, I've been also looking at... I looked at somebody who said how sad it is right now to listen on Sunday mornings and they wish they found on being earlier and it's, I am so here to say this is not ending, but we are evolving with the world and it's been incredible to be on public radio for 20 years, but we are still going to be there every Sunday morning. If you know how to find us, we have an incredible 20 year archive, everything you just heard, wisdom doesn't, wisdom ages well. So there is a lot, a lot of, very, of content that is very alive, in some cases more alive now than it was when those words were spoken. But we have been standing before the question as these pandemic years have unfolded, as we are all changed and our world is changed, um, of how we can most deeply be of service in this world. And part of the answer is to, to keep doing, to keep creating these shows that we know how to do, but not be doing that all the time. So we will be working seasonally. We, the, the podcast will be there. We're going to be coming back in the new year with a whole new season of new shows. But we're also creating a lab for the art of living to also meet a request that's come to us across these years. To, to create other ways to be present, to create usable tools and resources. Um, we also are going to be doing more convening and gathering and being present out in the world and learning there as well. Um, I want to make, I want, I, I, I am to tell you that at the end of this, um, there will be a way for you to subscribe to the pause which is our weekly email newsletter, and it too will be evolving. And you know, the pause has evolved several times. On Being has been constantly evolving, by the way, um, for 20 years, including from Speaking of Faith. Um, and, it, and every evolution has been gorgeous, and this one will be gorgeous too. And, and what we're entering right now is the summer of the pause, and I really just love that title. <laughs> the summer of the pause. And that's gonna be a place to actually where, where Again, as a Saturday morning ritual, we're going to send out um, reimaginings of our content, um, pieces of content, um, special offerings that, that, that feel like they can be nurturing um, in this time, in this summer. And when we get into the fall, we're going to be putting some special offerings into the podcast feed. So the two action items are please sign up for the pause, which will keep you on top of everything. And if you're not already subscribing to the podcast somewhere on Spotify and Apple, there are many places, please do so that you'll be notified when things start, start to drop there again. I wanna say that for me, the, the big picture here is that I'm loving everybody saying in the, in the chat, 
how beautiful it is to, uh, to understand that we are part of this community. And as I said, it's always felt that way to me. And I, I believe that there is such a thing as a generative narrative of our time. And all of our guests are part of it and our listeners are part of it. And, um, and that is what we must more purposefully cultivate in this world ahead. And that's what we're putting all of our creativity to and all of our mission. Um, I think maybe those are the big things I needed to say. I'm sure I'm forgetting something, so please subscribe to the Summer of the Pause and whatever I forgot to say. We will, yes, people have been asking, we will be putting this listening party in its entirety out in the podcast feed soon and in the pause. There's so much more to come, so please don't feel sad. <laughs> please, you are, you are already part of this, and, and we're actually going to grow and deepen together in an incredible time to be alive in very daunting ways. And I always think of that language of Vincent Harding, magnificent ways. Magnificent If we ways. rise to our higher potentials. Gorgeous. Jen, thank you for being here. Oh, Krista, I'm so happy to be here. I wouldn't have you. wanted, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, I, I wanted to do it with you and as it, you know, you're my, I walk alongside you, walk, I walk alongside the future. And I also just want to thank my incredible colleagues, my incredibly talented, and my incredibly talented colleagues who are also incredible human beings, and what a labor of love this has been. Everybody has been involved. And, um, yeah, I think I think the only thing it's you know it's just been a massive work of creativity. Um, I think the only thing left is for us to end this this experience the way we end the show, <laughs> which is that you normally hear their voices, and today you're also going to see their faces. And I want to say it this way: I'm Krista Tippett. Uh, and this is On Being. Chris Hegel. Loren Drammerhausen. Aaron Colasacco. Eddie Gonzalez. Lillian Vo. Lucas Johnson. Suzette Burley. Zach Rose. Colleen Scheck. Julie Seipel. Gretchen Honnold. Jale Akavan. Padrigo Tuma. Gautam Shrikishan. Ashley Herr. Matt Martinez. Amy Chatelaine. Cameron Musar. Romy Neme. And Kayla Edwards. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. 
the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. 